Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a God who has spoken. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it is you've said this evening, and, and by understanding, come to, obey, come to obey you. Amen. We're in 2 Kings, chapter 6, and that's on page 375. And if you have it in front of you, and I have it in front of me, we'll be okay. Before we kick off, it'll probably help if we understand what kind of book Two Kings is and why it was written. Because then we're going to have some context for understanding, for, we'll have some context what the story was used for. Uh, my view is the standard view that this book was written during Judah's time in exile in Babylon. And this is deeply significant for the way that we try and the way we understand the book. Because on top of all the social and political stuff that comes with being kicked out of your homeland and shoved somewhere else, being in exile in Babylon for the people of Israel was a deeply theological crisis because the temple is in ruins. The promised land is closed. Everything that spoke of God's faithfulness to you and your people has been taken away. Now this, so naturally, there are some pretty hefty questions that the people of Israel have about their relationship with God. Does God's covenant with his people still stand? Are the gods of Babylon just stronger than Israel's God? See, the time in which the book we're about to read was written was a time of massive uncertainty for the people of Israel. And these were real questions for them. And this story would have had real impact on their lives. And we've got to try and hear it the way they heard it. Uh, And Kings is a book that tries to explain how everything has gone so wrong, but that God is still all-powerful. And it tries to do this by using the, uh, the parameters established in Deuteronomy. Um, basically, basically, if they're obedient in the land, God will bless them. If they're disobedient in the land, God will remove them from the land. And this works out in the book of Kings, in 2, 2 Kings chapter 17, where we read Israel were kicked out of the land. Why? Because they were disobedient to God. Therefore, they didn't get kicked out of the promised land because a God more powerful than Yahweh turned up. Rather, they got kicked out because God is all-powerful and they disobeyed him. So with that in mind, with that, with that idea in mind, we've got to, we'll home in a bit on our passage. Because surrounding this passage in chapter 6, uh, there are episodes which all have one common theme, life and death. Uh, before it, God, through his prophet Elisha, is bringing life where there was death before. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 11, we'll just take a quick whisk through the book to show it. 2.21, there is the cleansing of water that otherwise would have caused death. 4, verse 1 to 7, there is the miracle of the widow's oil, which he then sells and lives on the prophets. 4, 32 to 35, there's a raising of a dead boy. 4, 38 to 41, there's the cleansing of poisonous food so they can eat it during a famine. 5.14, there's the cleansing of Naaman's leprosy. And 6, 8 to 23, there's temporarily ending the war with Aram so no one is getting killed. Everywhere before our passage opens, God is bringing life where there was death before. But then on the other side of our passage, into chapters 9 and 10, uh, God is bringing a whole lot of death as his servant Jehu bloodily dismantles Omri's uh, dynasty. And in our passage, we see this strong contrast with life on one hand and death on the other, and God is in complete control of both. Because the God of creation has the potency to deliver life and death. And as we go through the story before us, we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about that. 
and what the first hearers would have done with that theology. As we open our passage, there's a crisis in the northern kingdom. Flick back to chapter 6, verse 24. Because the king of the Arameans has turned up with his whole army and they're parked outside Samaria's city walls. We have our first threat of death in the passage, an invading army. And they've been there for so long, uh, moving into verse 25, that there's a great famine in the city. Penned in with no supplies, the city's run out of food and a black market has come into operation, selling nasty things at extortionate prices. And if we think our shopping bills are getting bad, at least we haven't been put into the auction for a donkey's head or pigeon dung like these people. The city is in a state of starvation, and to stay alive, verse 28 to 30, mothers are forced to eat their own children. And when they appeal to the king for help, verse 26, King Joram, who's not named in this story, is utterly powerless to help. It's significant Joram's not named. It undercuts him. He's, not pow- he's completely powerless. Take a look at verse 27. The king replied, If the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? He is exposing the fact he's utterly helpless. There's, there's just nothing he can do. There is no food left. Um, that little phrase, from the threshing floor, from the wine press, um, it was an idiom. It's like we might say... I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the king is utterly powerless to do anything about this threat of death from starvation. But it's also the vocabulary of judgment, because the threshing floor in, later, uh, in, in the later prophetic literature was the place of judgment, Hosea 13.3 and Micah 4.12. And this is just the slightest little nudge directing us to think of the siege and the famine afterwards in terms of God's judgment on the nation. And the original hearers wouldn't have needed much more than this little nudge to think of it in those terms. Because King Joram is part of Omri's dynasty. And that doesn't mean much to us. But if you were to talk to an ancient Israelite about King Omri's dynasty, it'd be like mentioning Maggie Thatcher in the Welsh coal mines. It was all associated, it all had the strong association, negative associations. Because under Omri's, Omri's son was Ahab. And by the influence of Jezebel, the whole state was paganized. So the state religion under Omri's dynasty had had gone on to Baal worship. And Joram, verse 33, very quickly sees the siege as judgment and abandons all hope in God. This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And against all this, the helpless king can't do anything but mourn. He tears his clothes and reveals he's wearing a sackcloth, a picture of mourning underneath. If you want to see a modern example of this, just wait for Mahindra Singh Dhoni's first interview back in India. It's going to look a lot like that. Then suddenly, verse 31, the king's sorrow turns into anger. He blames Elisha for the siege because it was Elisha in the previous story who had humiliated the king of Aram. So we then we cut scene to Elisha who is in his house and he's gallantly using the elders of the city as a human shield against the king's assassins. But what a contrast that is to the previous events we've seen um, building up to this story. The prophet, who until so recently had been going freely around Israel giving life, is now cowering behind a closed door against a king who's been exposed as powerless. It's not a subtle irony at all, but it's there, it's a, it's there to show us the contrast there is there between life and death. You have the third thread of death, the king's anger. 
the outlook is pretty bleak. Death is coming from all sides and there doesn't seem to be anything anyone can do about it. But then the turning point comes. God speaks. Notice that at the point where death seems to be inevitable, God, only God, is able to speak words of life. 7 verse 1. Elisha said, This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sarah of flour will sell for a shekel and two sarahs of barley for a, shekel, for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Where before there was a lack of food leading to jacked up prices for filth, now there's going to be so much food that even the good stuff's going to be cheap. In just 24 hours' time, this life, this abundance, we brought back to the city. Now, as part of this prophecy, is an appeal to Joram to trust that where there is only death, God can bring life. And for a moment, there's hope that Joram will turn fully to the Lord. But at the key moments, Joram is silent. King Joram doesn't say anything. And his officer speaks for him, 7 verse 2. And he scorns the, prophet, the promise of God of salvation. Um, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning. Uh, that little phrase isn't meant to be taken literally, I don't think. It's not like the king was a little bit overtired or overfriendly. It's a play on words. It's a, they're using it as a pun. And it's giving insight into the kind of king Joram is. It means that this officer was the king's right-hand man, and the king had this unhealthy level of dependence on him. Kind of like, um, have you seen Blackadder 3? Kind of like Blackadder to Prince George in that. Kind of, there's that kind of relationship. But 7-2, seven, seven because of his scornful attitude, which remains unchallenged by Joram, Joram never says anything about it, but he kind of agrees with it later in the story, this officer will not be part of the deliverance from death. So these two prophecies now hang over the rest of the story. The famine will be ended, 7 verse 1, and this officer is going to die. And the tension through the rest of this episode is, does God really, is God really going to be able to keep these prophecies? Does God really have the potency to deliver life and death? Big questions if you're in exile in Babylon. Very big question if you've put your trust in Jesus to give you life. Does God really have the potency to do that? The answer in this passage is a resounding yes. Yahweh is the all-powerful God and life and death are in his hands. And from 7, 3 to 16, we've got this weird little story that's quite funny about how the siege was broken, about how God is so powerful, he can send an entire army on the run using only a handful of lepers. Verse 3, the scene changes from these powerful men of state arguing through a doorway, and we thought the House of Commons was bad, to the four lepers on the outskirts of the city deciding what the best thing to do is. 7 verse 3. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. Maybe they'll spare us and we'll live. That sounds sensible enough, doesn't it? So they go off, shuffling across no man's land to the Arameans. Meanwhile, however, in the Aramean camp, they think they hear someone coming. Verse 6. The Lord has caused them to hear the four lepers shuffling along as Egyptian and Hittite mercenaries who have been hired by Israel to, to break the siege. And so they pelt off as quickly as they can. And just as the Arameans go pell-mell out the back door, these four lepers come shuffling in the front. We're not a million miles away from the Keystone Cops when we think of it like that. The four lepers can hardly believe their luck, verse 8. They tuck in, nick some stuff, bury it. Shuffle back, nick some more stuff and bury it. 
And verse 9, they finally decide it would be a good idea to let the poor people back in Samaria know that the siege is over and that donkeys' heads and pigeon dung and children are off the menu. But when the news reaches the king, he's not so convinced. We see the silence, the, the, the silence that faced the officers' uh, uh, doubt now comes out in the king's own doubt. Verse 12. Because I know... Ooh. Chapter 7, verse 12, not chapter 8, verse 12. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done. They know we are starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out and we can then take the city. The king is sceptical about God's capacity to fulfill what he's promised. And this lack of faith in the power of God is an attitude that's been criticised time and again in this story. And we're being warned about that attitude and encouraged to trust in the authority of God. Verse 13, the servant brings an element of common sense to the whole proceedings. And he says, look, king, just go and send someone to have a look. We don't all have to go at once. So some scouts are sent out, and they find the Arameans still hot-footing it for the border. So the people of Samaria go and plunder the camp, 16 to 18. The siege is over, and the famine is lifted. 7 verse 16 you'll notice is an exact repetition of, of the prophecy in 7 verse 1. It is exactly how God said it would be. As 7.18 makes very clear, it happened just as the man of God had said to the king. So where there was only death, God has brought life. But what of the unbelieving officer, the king's right-hand man? He gets trampled to death in the surge for the Aramean camp. It happened just as God said it would, verses 19 to 20. See, everything in this story has been within the hands of God. It was God who brought the Aramean siege and famine on the land. It was God who gave the promises of life and death. It was God who set the Aramean army on the run. It was God who broke the siege. It was God who ended the famine. And in the end, it was God who administered life, and it was God who administered death. It's not rocket science, is it? It's about as subtle as a train crash, what he's doing. God is all-powerful, and he alone has the potency to deliver life and deliver death. Deuteronomy 13.19 would have been in the writers and the reader's mind. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. That's a significant message if you're in Babylon, unsure of God's power and, and, and his intentions for you. Now as we start to think about what this story means for us, the first question we've got to ask is what did it mean to them? What would they have done with this theology? Well, as, Lord, as the Lord has complete authority over all things, then it is no accident the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. It's not that there were other gods more powerful than Yahweh, it's that they were disobedient and they got what their disobedience deserved under that covenant. Therefore, even the horrors and the uncertainty of exile weren't any grounds to stop trusting in the power of God. But what about for us? How can this great truth of God's absolute authority over life and over death be applied to our experience? Well, when we consider ourselves as those people who have faith in Jesus Christ, we see the same principle at work. For it's in Jesus we see that the one through whom creation was made is the one who has complete authority over life and death, and he's the one who has secured everlasting life for us. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? that the author of life, Acts 3.15, should be killed so that life could come where there was only death before. 
Um, Turn your Bibles over to John 6, verse 38 to 40. It's on page 1071 of the Bible, of your church Bibles. Uh, Jesus is speaking. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I, that is Jesus, will raise him up on the last day. Now because we have a Saviour who has expressed such authority over life and death, we have a certain hope, don't we? Our bodies will be raised because the one who has saved us has got the authority to do it, just as we've learned in the story that, the God, that, the God, that God has the potency to deliver life or death. The one who has given us eternal life is the one who is uniquely capable of doing it. That's what Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is about, isn't it? And despite all they suffered, the Israelites, the exile was no grounds to abandon hope in God. That's not the attitude that Scripture is encouraging us to adopt. Rather, we're reminded by the story that God has the potency over life and death and how we've been shown that fully and finally in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that is the hope that we have. Therefore, we are to keep our eyes on the certain hope we have in Jesus and not on the mess that's happening all around us and in our lives. Because our hope can't be measured or disproved by changing human experience, the death of family members, the loss of a job, the continued suffering of Christians around the world. Because our hope is in the unchanging fact that God, our God, holds life and death in his hands. And he has chosen to give us life as gift through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for what you have told us about yourself in this story. We thank you that you are the God who is all-powerful and that you are the God who alone holds authority over life and death. We thank you so much that you have chosen to give us life through Christ. We thank you so much for the certainty of that hope we have. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to live as those who have received life. Amen.